Welcome to The Expert View. I'm Siobhan Creighton, and today I'm joined by Professor Fergus Shanahan. I like to always point out that the patient is the one who should be in the control, but usually isn't. The patient is the one who should be the boss, but seldom feels that way. The patient is, in a way, if you like, the customer, the client, if you want to use those awful terms. The doctor is the person providing the service, and the client is always right. Today we're going to talk about the language of illness. What to say when somebody's ill, what not to say, what makes a good doctor, and how kindness, simple language, and common sense is often the best medicine. I'm Fergus Shanahan. I'm a clinician scientist, a Dublin medical graduate uh, working in Cork. I'm now called Professor Emeritus of Medicine. I'm the former chairman of medicine in, in Cork University Hospital and University College Cork. And in my scientific world, I was the foundation director of what's referred to as APC Microbiome Ireland, which is a research centre focused on the investigation of how microbes influence health and disease. I'm here today because I've written a book recently. This book is actually on illness. The book is entitled The Language of Illness and published by Liberties Press. My field of medicine is all about the gut, primarily diseases of the gut. Uh, everything from Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease, to colon cancer. But I had never previously written about the actual lived experience with those diseases. Disease is the word we use when it's the physical evidence, objective evidence that there's something wrong. Whereas illness is the personal experience someone has with that disease. And it's infinitely more complex and, in my view, infinitely more interesting than the disease. I was struck by, in, in the book, the, the way you talk about the doctor-patient relationship. I mean, I was surprised to hear you saying that it was akin to master and servant. And when you tease out the issues in the book, I can see that. But I suppose a patient is coming to you or some of your colleagues and they're at a time of crisis. And then you're seeing them and for you, this is a routine. And I think that's the tension that, that you really talk about. Do you, want, do you want to describe that? Do you think doctors are aware of that tension of, and how, how challenging is it to, step, to remember that, well, this is routine for you. This is somebody's personal crisis who has to live with the consequences. Well, first of all, the doctor-patient relationship are, if you, if you will, patient-carer relationship, because it doesn't have to be a doctor. It could be a nurse. It could be any healthcare professional, but let's just stick with doctor-patient for the moment. It's the cornerstone of everything in medicine. Technology is not the cornerstone. The system is not the cornerstone. It's that relationship between a carer and a patient that is the cornerstone, but it is changing and has changed dramatically in, 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 in my career. But what the carer needs to know, what the doctor needs to keep reminding themselves is, that it is routine for them for most serious and we're, we're talk, not talking about trivial illnesses we're talking about usually chronic disease something quite significant that has major impact on the life of a patient it's crisis for most patients and that's immediately a barrier for the two of them and i frequently would say that to patients i, I would acknowledge that up front uh, so that they would not think that i was taking their symptoms in some way uh, loosely or in casually but i needed to get i needed to ask and interrupt make make key interruptions at times so that they would know i have to be formulating a plan i have to say stay calm i have to stay objective but i understand why they are in a panic and why they're perhaps angry why they're perhaps emotional 
And I would point out that while I'll try and stay focused on facts, I recognize that they will be dealing with emotions. But we, we, between the two of us, at the end of this consultation, we have, to, we have to cover both the facts and the emotion. And I think when that's up front, patients appreciate that. But I like to always point out that the patient is the one who should be in the control, but usually isn't. The patient is the one who should be the boss, but seldom feels that way. The patient is in a way, if you like, the customer, the client, if you want to use those awful terms, the doctor is the person providing the service and the client is always right. And doctors need to remind themselves, they, they need to remind themselves that that is, you know, underlying the reality of this. And uh, if you look at some of the asymmetries that happen, the patient arrives in, their time is of the essence for them because they, they, they've been waiting. They are desperately needing reassurance about something. But of course, the doctor is composed. It's routine for us. We we'll see seven, ten more patients just like this. We are ready. We are trained. The patient is not trained for this sort of stuff. And um, the patient is seeking wisdom, but might be extremely intelligent and well-informed about life in general. In fact, maybe well be far more educated than the doctor in real life matters. But on this specific issue, they're seeking information and they're seeking that wisdom. The reason I came to write the book was that we have diminishing amount of time with our patients nowadays for various reasons we can talk about, but technology has not increased the amount of time we have. It has actually shortened the amount of time. As research has advanced, we've actually had, we actually have a parallel reduction in the amount of time spent and language should not add to that asymmetry. So, for example, medical students, when they go into medical school, by the time they're finished their first year, they will on average have learned 10,000 new words. Big vocabulary expansion. I argue most of that's irrelevant, unnecessary. It's not uncommon for patients to say, he's speaking a language or she's speaking a language that's different to me. And very well educated people who've written illness memoirs have actually said, you know, people who are not fearful in any way and people who are well able to hold their position in life frequently say, I couldn't bring myself to explain to the doctor the full story because the doctor is speaking a different language. And I use with the students a little cartoon that's where the doctor says, I speak disease speak. And the patient says, well, I'm just learning the illness words. And th they're not the same thing. Fear, shame, failure. Uh, anger, despair, that, you know, doctors tend not to use. We don't even tend to use the key word, which is suffering. Why should a nosebleed be called epistaxis? Why should we replace the familiar with the unfamiliar? Why should a runny nose become rhinorrhea? Why burden a medical student with such nonsense? Why do we have to have a thing called pruritus? Usually misspelled, incidentally, but that just means a niche. I mean, why don't we just use those simple things and instead of reintroducing all these, these other nonsenses? And then we, of course, use words that obfuscate. For example, if you present to me with a cough and you're a smoker, I'll say, look, the cause of your cough is smoking or the cause of your ulcer is helicobacter. In other words, when I'm confident, when I know the cause, I say it straight out. The cause of this is that. But when I don't know the cause, doctors dream up these other words like idiopathic or to use the term etiology which grammatically is incorrect because it means the study of causes 
but they use it interchangeably with the word cause. Cause has five letters. Etiology probably has six or seven. Totally unnecessary words. And we're off down the road of a bad language, an unnecessary language. So if we've minimal amount of precious time with patients, let's at least not have language as be, being the problem. Now, I should say that doctors are well-trained today, even though the lay public may think it's inadequate training, they're well-trained on communication skills. The Royal College of Physicians teaches communication skills. All of the medical schools teach communication skills. I would argue most of those skills are actually within the realm of common sense. And that if people just practice talking to each other with a bit of kindness and simple language, most of this is, is, is really common sense. The other thing that strikes me is it, when a patient comes and they're in crisis and, they're, and you know, they're going for potentially a, a diagnosis that's going to change their life or, and, and their family's life. I always think it's important that you have somebody with you, you know, because you, you may shut down when you hear this. But it's critically important, isn't it, that the patient has a third party or somebody who can actually hear what's being said when they just can't comprehend it. Is, is that your experience or what, what would you advise patients in those scenarios? Yeah, I, I agree. I never, in olden days, maybe earlier physicians used to dislike having a, a third party in there. I would, I always felt the patient is the boss. If the patient wants somebody in there, even if it's a lawyer, and I must say I don't particularly enjoy having a lawyer in the room, but even if it's a lawyer, I'm quite comfortable. If they, it, it is something that's needed because they do miss a lot. And I'd add one other thing. Sometimes time in divided doses is necessary. In other words, there have been times when I've, and many clinicians will find the same, when I've informed someone of a, of a, a, a pretty devastating diagnosis. I actually think it's important to double back some hours later and just to see them and spend a couple of moments and say, look, I know that was shocking for you. Is there anything you'd like to ask me? And frequently they'll say, look, the minute I walked out the door, I had thousands of questions. Mm -hmm. And it only struck me, you know, sometime afterwards. And words, the doctors, we all would, would, would use words like, we might say, well, you have a tumor. And the patient might not realize that, that actually, you're, you, what you're really saying is I have a cancer. And, but yet one can't wallop them over the head with, with, with aggressive medical speak. So time given in divided doses rather than one big long con uh, consultation or even a phone call after they go home. A phone call to say, look, I know that was, was tough news for you today. Do you want to ask me anything? And that can send them to send them off with, with great reassurance when you clarify a few points. But yes, third person in the room to, to help with steer the conversation, not to interrupt and not to take over. The history should be given by the patient. The symptoms, we want to hear the patient's illness words and their metaphors, not the third party. But the third party is can help steer the conversation and, and help them ask the right question. And uh, the other thing I, 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 you mentioned in the book is that there's a lot of evidence to show that when you ask the patient to talk about their history, that inevitably after 20 seconds, the doctor will interrupt. Now, sometimes it's in a supportive way to get more information from that patient, but it's still an interruption. Um, and, and that seems to be the norm. Yes. Um, now, I do defend um, history taking in a sense. There are certain times a doctor has to at times take command and seek out certain facts. So some interruptions are appropriate to, to steer the, the conversation, but far fewer than doctors think. 
and certainly people i think people are entitled to more than 20 seconds before the first interruption occurs and one can miss an awful lot if patients aren't allowed to speak because if you let them speak long enough they actually provide a diagnosis uh, I, I used to say look i don't do diagnosis anymore i only do therapeutics uh, because it's the patient almost always gives the diagnosis in, in, in modern day medicine with chronic disease, it's always in the history. And that's not to say the physical examination is unimportant, but the, and uh, amazing things can fall out in a conversation. Um, I, I mentioned a, a little story in the book where a patient came to me and he, he'd, he'd seen several physicians before. And as he said, he had the Rolls Royce of investigations. He even had a liver biopsy. He was a man who was experiencing episodes of hepatitis for which no cause could be found. And he even knew more. He was able to rattle off all the causes before I even mentioned it. And he even knew the, the species and varieties and Latin names for the mushrooms that can cause hepatitis before I, I i just knew mushrooms but but he knew he knew far more than i did and made it very clear to me that whatever would happen he was hunted along by his wife and i was the last resort and uh, it was very clear to me he wasn't going to take any nonsense from me and he certainly was not going to have any more investigations so we just chatted and out of the conversation it emerged that uh, he had one passion in life which was to go off uh, shooting during the shoot, shooting season and I'm a city slicker, I knew nothing about shooting, but I was interested in the guns he had, and I just chatted about that. And then it emerged that he used to clean the guns with carbon tetrachloride. And we thought in medical school, well, that's one of the major liver toxins. And he was inadvertently inhaling the fumes from the carbon tetrachloride. Once we changed that, we never had a problem ever again. <laughs> and that diagnosis emerged from, couldn't have been more than a few minutes chatting away just getting to know the patient and there was no need for high tech high tech was not necessary case solved just by learning a bit about the patient letting them letting them speak so small talk is important really is what is what you're saying it's never small you're quite right small talk is never small it's always informative you mentioned it in in the book about you know some patients are seen as bad patients or you know people who people feel aren't that sick or people who you know, can't express themselves well or difficult patients. I mean, how do you address that? Um, I do to some degree think that sometimes the doctor-patient relationship hinges on whether you like the person. I mean, there's just a fact of the matter that patient may not like the doctor. And it doesn't matter how good the doctor is. If you don't like them, that's one of the few times when you probably should switch. But vice versa, there are times when a doctor, I have to say it's precious few, when a doctor just doesn't bond or relate with, with a patient. Uh, I do think the more time you spend, and if it's time well invested in listening to, to their background, frequently you'll break that down. So there, there is a term in medicine where people talk about heart sync patient. There are a number of these derogatory terms, but they're often, I generally think, they're often very troubled people. They're people who may be angry, angry with their condition, or, there may be people, for example, where the illness has very few signs. If you've got a chronic illness that has very few, very few objective evidence, evidence of objective evidence of something wrong, so few signs, few laboratory abnormalities. So, for example, some diseases have loads of signs, 
and other, other diseases have lots of symptoms but very few signs. But if you're one of the people who has a chronic uh, series of complaints and symptoms where nobody can actually objectively verify it. And there are examples like irritable bowel syndrome would be an example, but there are many others. And where someone is suffering for a long time, one of the burdens, one of the added elements of suffering for them is that they come to believe that, well, maybe my loved one, maybe my husband, maybe my doctor doesn't actually believe that I have this. And that's a whole added burden and, and foments anger as, as well. And furthermore, if they have to prove that they're ill, they find it far more difficult to get well. If you have to play a sickness role and prove you're ill, it's far more difficult to get well. So that some of these heart-sync patients uh, are in that category. And I think the way to deal with it is straight up front and say, well, first thing I want you to know is that I agree with you, this illness is real. It's absolutely real. The fact that the tests, the laboratory tests are normal doesn't mean it's not real. There are lots of illnesses and explain that to patients. That's of itself remarkably reassuring. And the number of heart sink patients are what might be called heart sink patient, I'd call them a troubled patient, diminishes immediately. Yeah. You establish trust then, I, I guess, between, yeah. between yeah. you. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, there, I've been asked, what, what's the dis difference between a good doctor and a bad doctor? You know, I, um, it's difficult to define, but um, one of the distinctions would be the word curiosity. Um, a number of illness memoirs have commented on this. You don't need a high-tech doc. You don't need the, the smartest and most intelligent doctor. You need a doctor you can trust. You need a doctor you can talk to. But particularly, you need a doctor who's actually interested in you yourself. And curiosity has to be cultured. So, you know, you, you only acquire that curiosity if you, if you engage in some of that chit-chat that, that I, we were referring to earlier. I suppose the challenge is that time is so limited now, you know, you, you, even you're, as, as you mentioned, you you can be waiting to see your doctor. Then when you get to see them, it, it's not like you, the doctor has a lot of leisurely time to be, you know, wandering through those stories with them either. And, and that's a challenge, too, isn't it, for both the doctor and the patient? Undoubtedly, time is critical for the patient and time perception changes when you're sick. Time slows down when you're given a diagnosis of a serious illness. But for the doctor, They've still got the same routine. They've still got 30 or 40 patients perhaps to see. And while the system sees time as a commodity, an expense, uh, the patient absolutely values time spent. But doctors also need more time with their patients. And I would argue, I didn't dwell on it hugely in the book, but I would argue that some of this modern pandemic of professional burnout is in part related to dissatisfaction in the daily routine of medicine because doctors are not getting enough time with their patients. The real enjoyment and the central keystone of healthcare is actually the patient care or doctor-patient relationship. And if the patient is unhappy because of insufficient time and the doctor is unhappy because of insufficient time, this is not a good recipe. So one way to, is to improve the efficiency of that time. There's no doubt that the time is diminishing with every advance since World War II the amount of time doctors get to spend with patients is diminishing. Even the nurses are getting less time because they're spending a lot of time on paperwork and computer work. So we're all getting less time with the patients. And it's not that patients are hugely demanding. 
they don't actually require a huge amount of time. So time spent uh, uh, well, and not just assuming that chit chat is idle or time consuming, um, is, is a wise thing to do. But language should not be interfering with that time. Yeah. And, and, and just in terms of um, kindness, I suppose as well, it's, you know, what do you say to somebody when they have received um, news of an illness or, you know, they're going through really bad health? You, you have observations there about kind of what to say and what not to say. Oh, well, I mean, this is where we, we, we depart from, if you like, the doctor-patient relationship. It's just person-to-person relationship because, you know, illness is absolutely universal. All of us will play a role in an illness story at some stage, including our own illness story, but, but we'll certainly play a role in the illness story of a friend or a loved one or a parent or a sister or brother uh, if they're um, given a, a serious diagnosis. That will happen. And the way we play that role can either accentuate the suffering for that person or mitigate it. And one of the reasons people conceal uh, news of a, di- of a serious diagnosis is they anticipate an awkwardness on the part of the person they'd inform and they just want to avoid that so my own view is that um, you don't have to the first thing we should do is contrive is is get over our awkwardness and uh, don't contrive reasons not to talk to the ill and um, be there be present and if you don't know what to say the best thing to say then is i don't know what to say just be honest they really only want you there, your presence. And countless numbers of illness memoirs, and I've read hundreds of them. That's one of the most consistent things they'll say. They want the visitor there, not chattering away about all kinds of things. Just sit there and be with them and listen to their stories. So a good listener, not a speaker. But the other thing that, that countless memoirs say is they're not interested in having a visitor who is a storyteller. In other words, if they've been struck down with something serious like motor neuron disease or cancer or some significant illness, they really don't want to hear about John Joe Murphy from down the street who had something similar. They, they don't want someone else's story. They, they, they want to talk about their own story. They certainly don't want you to be a philosopher. There's no place for saying, well, this is God's will or this is God's way or the, the Lord works in mysterious ways or couldn't it have been better? To actually downplay the thing and and be a minimizer, that's terrible again. You should not do that and say, well, you know, couldn't it have been worse? Well, that's not what what, uh, the ill needs. So we don't want philosophers, we don't want storytellers, and we certainly don't want minimizers. Just be there and simple, honest language is all that's necessary. Okay. Even silence, even silence. Yeah. And that's good advice because it can be challenging for people to know what to say and people i suppose compensate with the silence and say, start saying things that are not helpful but the key is not to allow your awkwardness because i mean we all know it is awkward it's not easy and it's far easier to stay away it's far easier to contrive reasons to say well i have to go to the dentist i've got to go to the bank i've got to go somewhere else and i didn't get to stop by to say hello um, but we shouldn't allow that awkwardness get in the way. Um, their needs are quite simple, just just a bit of presence, a bit of time, that's all. Yeah. The other thing I was struck by was, uh, and it's a story that would be familiar to many people, is when you spoke about um, bringing your son uh, to, uh, I think it was America, 
um, and just how you were watching, you, you really wanted everybody to be rooting for you, which came down for the porter to the person on the reception desk, whatever. And I think that's a common thing that you really you really want people to will you along as you're going along through the hospital system. Do you want do you want to talk about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the patient, as I said, is in crisis and the support team is in crisis as well, sometimes even greater crisis. And um, there's also a super sensitivity. When someone is ill, they're acutely conscious of the behavior and awkwardness, as we just said, of others. And little small behaviors count, make a big difference. Tiny, tiny gestures of kindness go an awful long way and are noticed. And, you know, I comment about that you only get one chance to make first impressions. And Maya Angelou, the famous uh, late American poet, she wrote that you know people will they'll forget what you what you said to them, uh, what a doctor or said they'll uh, uh, because they're in crisis, and they'll forget probably what you did. They won't even remember. Did you do a CAT scan? Did you do an MRI? Or did you do nothing? Or but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And Fergus, you're speaking at our annual conference next week, our St Luke's Symposium. What are you going to be talking about? Well, at St Luke's. I'm going to speak not so much about the person-to-person interaction or the doctor-to-patient or nurse-patient interaction. I'm going to speak more about how does the system communicate with the public? Because we happen to have a big crisis at the moment and we have many other crises in the future. Uh, This is just the one that's taken us by storm now, but keep in mind we have um, a climatic crisis We've global warming. We've an antibiotic resistance crisis going on. We're running out of antibiotics. We've numerous other crises, but we have the, the current issue, which is the global pandemic. And while this is a public health crisis, it's also a communications crisis. And I'm going to deal with some of the issues uh, that uh, where we see the interaction between traditional media, print media, social media, and they are all interacting. And as you know, WHO, the World Health Organization, have pointed out that this is also a crisis of an infodemic, a massive amount of information that the public have to grapple with straight away, some of it misinformation. And I'm just going to address some of those issues about how language can help or hurt in that situation. Look forward to that, Fergus. It sounds fantastic. Fergus's book, The Language of Illness, is available from Liberty's Press. Thank you for listening to The Expert View.